You're listening to the Podcast Detroit Network. Visit www.podcastdetroit.com for more information. Welcome to Smart Sex, Smart Love. We're talking about sex goes beyond the taboos and talking about love goes beyond the honeymoon. I'm Dr. Joe Court. Thanks for tuning in. Hello, and welcome back to Smart Sex, Smart Love with me, Dr. Joe Court. We're talking about sex goes beyond the taboo and talking about love goes beyond the honeymoon. Today, I'm talking about out-of-control sexual behavior with co-author of Treating Out-of-Control Sexual Behavior, Rethinking Sex Addiction, Michael Vigorito. For 25 years, I, myself, was a sex addiction therapist, as well as a recovering sex addict is how I identified. The truth is that in trainings for sex addiction treatment, there lacks a mandatory sexual health and sex therapy component. Without a sexually informed model, it's easy for therapists to pathologize sexual behaviors and not provide effective treatment. The out-of-control sexual behavior model comes from a sexually informed and sex-positive place, focusing on principles of sexual health and not standing in judgment of one's sexual behaviors. On this episode, I'm going to talk with out-of-control sexual behavior model, uh, about the out-of-control sexual behavior model with Michael Vigorito. As well as an author, he's a licensed marriage and asect sex therapist who works out of his Washington, D.C. practice and provides individual and group psychotherapy for men concerned about problematic and out-of-control sexual behavior. So what does it actually mean for sex to feel out of control? Let's find out. Welcome, Michael. Thank you, Joe. Great to be here. Could you, I'm so glad to have you here. I want people to hear from you. What is the difference when between somebody who, who's, who believes they are out of control as opposed to feel out of control? No, that's a great question. And that's actually part of the definition of out of control sexual behavior is when a person's consensual sexual urges, thoughts, and behaviors feel out of control for them, right? So it is a, a subjective experience. But what we like to say is that just because you feel out of control doesn't necessarily mean that you are out of control. There are likely times where the person is stopping. They are self-regulating. They're likely not doing uh, whatever sexual behavior they're concerned about 24-7. So it's an opportunity to get curious about those moments, how they actually are uh, self-regulating or or altering their behavior. But while uh, we are trying to get clear on when they have these pockets where they feel out of control, what is happening for them at those times. So there's some interesting contradictions that we can work with already uh, when someone presents with out of control sexual behavior. That's a great distinction so that people, because people just assume, well, if this is happening, I'm out of control and it's not, it's not me. Uh, It's something, someone else. And how do you deal with that when someone says that? Uh, When, when it's coming from someone else, you mean, or can you, what do you mean uh, yeah, that? like your client says, it doesn't feel like it's me at all. It feels like it's someone else. Oh, I see what you're saying. Uh, so it sounds like there they're talking about, it's like a, a metaphor, right? That is like someone else takes over uh, or like uh, and they'll use language like all of a sudden I, you're like, oh, so it was almost like they had a loss of time. Uh, so in that moment, what I like to do is just slow them down, right? And it's like, all right, well, before that moment, walk me through what was happening. What were you feeling? What were you thinking? What was happening in your life? And when they just have that moment to slow down and kind of also self-regulate their activation in the moment, they usually kind of recover that memory. They're like, oh, well, I was actually really stressed at that moment, or I was really feeling upset with my spouse, or I got into this conflict with my, um, my boss, and I was really uh, angry. 
was like, oh, okay, so you were angry before you made this decision. He's like, yeah. And he said, so we just kind of go piece by piece and slowly move through and kind of bring them back into their body, bring them back into their awareness. But I am listening for those moments where they're like, and then all of a sudden I felt, and I was like, no, 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 let's slow down. <laughs> Don't step over that moment because that moment is actually really important because that's when you're making some critical decisions for your health. I like that because when you think of it, when, when you're using people use the addiction model, they would skip over that, you know? Yeah. It's like, it just happened. Like it's your addict, right? People would say, yeah. yeah they'll say like my addict brain took over. Yeah. And so when I hear something like that, I'm like, Oh, tell me more about that. Like how are we using that language? Uh, what does that mean to you? And then usually they might describe something like, well, I was starting to feel really horny or I was starting to feel really agitated. I was really feeling some shame about X I was like, oh, that's interesting. So what you're saying is not that some external force came over and took over your body. What you're saying is you became highly activated internally, and then you were making decisions. Now, I also want to acknowledge like when people do get super activated or hyperactivated, they may not make the same decisions that they would have made if they were in a calmer state too. So like, I hear that as a metaphor. It's like, I'm feeling, you know, uh, extremely activated and then I was making this decision. It was like I was super horny and I became more impulsive, right? It's similar to like saying it's it's if you get uh, really hungry and someone puts this big, beautiful piece of chocolate cake in front of you, it's much harder to resist it uh, than if that cake was down the street around the corner still in the bakery, right? You're just more impulsive because you're so hungry and you really want that cake because you know it's going to taste really good. Mm-hmm. Uh, so sometimes I hear that metaphor saying like I was just really in this hyperactive state and I made the decision in that mindset. What I like about the work you do is that you explain the behavior before they got to the behavior. It's not like we're just going to explain what you're doing. It's not going to, it's not like I said in the beginning, judging the behavior. It's understanding how you made these decisions and got there. Yeah. And sometimes the decision was made uh, hours before, even days before. They were setting themselves up uh, to uh, cross their boundaries or dishonor a commitment. Uh, based on something that may have happened a few days before, but they know they won't have the opportunity until like Friday night or Saturday night. So that also takes away. It's like, this wasn't really an impulsive decision. There was some premeditation. There was some planning here. So no, you know, this external force did not come over and take, uh, take control of your body. You made this decision on Tuesday uh, and then you cross these boundaries on Friday. Mm-hmm. And I want to get curious about that. I want to know more about that choice. So, um, as I started when I opened up uh, that I, and I'm pretty public about this, that I used to mm-hmm. identify as a sex addict uh, because I had erotic interests that I felt ashamed of. And, you know, in fact, I don't know if I ever told you this, Michael, but I um, had therapists in the eighties who were like, you're not a sex addict. You just have a kinky side. You're, mm-hmm. you know, we can work with this, it, you know? And I was like, you're fired. I needed to find a therapist to say, you're fucked up. This is pathological. Something's wrong with you. And then I was like, thank you. Right. And then I went into this whole sex addiction treatment and all of that. And then later I learned over time, sexual health models. I learned about sex therapy through ASECT and I realized how uninformed I was and the whole model was and really how I feel how harmful the model really is. So I left the whole industry. Don't identify that way. My question to you is, why don't you treat it as a sex addiction? What came, what, how did you make that decision to say, I'm not going to treat it that way? Sure. No, that's a great question. Uh, so it, it started for me when I was a therapy pup, uh, kind of pre-licensed working in California. And I was starting to work at an HIV mental health clinic in San Diego. Uh, so in that program, uh, we were having people who were coming in, despite having a pretty negative consequence to their sexual behavior, becoming HIV positive, were still reporting that they were 
having difficulty controlling your behavior. And I was really curious to me. So I went into the literature to kind of see if I can figure out what was going on. And, and because sex addiction is such a prominent theory, that was one of the first things that I came across. So in reading it, though, I was looking at it going, wait a minute, if this is the criteria, this could be used to pathologize, let's say, someone who's struggling with coming out as being gay. Yes. Right? They're ashamed, they're, they're hiding the behavior, they're lying about it, they're secretive. Uh, so I was like, wait a minute, that to me is not a disorder or a disease. That is uh, an identity development problem. That is uh, um, uh, a values conflict between what they find erotic or sexual and who they thought they would be or the values that they had in the moment. So I, I set that aside to see if I could find another uh, model or conceptualization that would be inclusive to sexual diversity. And that's when I came across uh, literature around sexual health. You said that so much better than I've said it because I have said the same thing that it is like you can use that metaphor for so many different things. And yeah, people say, well, it fits. Well, even though it fits, it doesn't mean it is a- any kind of addiction. Yeah. And and just like with your story of how you, you were therapist shopping, you were looking for a therapist who would, uh, I would say, collude with that values judgment, right? You wanted to find someone that would support the shame or the judgments that you had about that erotic interest. So gay men who were closeted could find that therapist uh, in the eighties and the nineties, even today who would uh, provide psychotherapy to uh, help them avoid or split or defend against that part of them. And what we know now is that this is a completely unethical approach. You know, it's conversion therapy is both ineffective, right? It doesn't change someone's sexual orientation and it's harmful, right? It, it facilitates this split. Uh, and then what we know about when we have these splits, it can contribute to depression, suicidal ideation, drug and alcohol abuse. The approach we recommend now is for integration. How do we integrate someone's sexual and erotic interests uh, into how they understand themselves and into their relationship with one caveat, as long as the sexual behavior is consensual in nature? Mm. You're so smart. I love the way you say things. And because I was thinking that, and then there you say it. Um, what if your client though says, but I don't want this. I, I want you to help me not do this. Yeah. You know, sometimes I do have to disappoint my clients and that is hard. Uh, so I want to be clear about the parameters of psychotherapy of what we can and cannot do. And I want them to be fully informed in making healthcare choices. So if they if they don't want to work with me because I refuse to what we do, what we call a, an erotic-ectomy, right? Kind of scoop this out of their uh, erotic orientation. Uh, they need, need to know that uh, one, I can't do that. I don't know what psychological techniques will can afford uh, can do that. And two, in doing that, as I mentioned, this can be harmful. Uh, so instead, if I invite them, it's like, well, let's talk about the values and judgments that you have about this particular issue. You might not be ready to express it, and that is fine. But let's just acknowledge that it's here. Let's see if we can put words to it uh, and not um, label it as a, a psychiatric condition, right? Because if we if we label it as an addiction or uh, some psychosexual disorder, then there's something to um, put this in quotes, treat, right? And then it can be this uh, sideways attempt at conversion therapy. So again, I'm trying to protect the client from injury from me, uh, and hopefully they will uh, engage in that process in a way that, um, contributes to their health rather than facilitates this, what I call this split. 
I like that. And it sounds like what you're saying, and I say this myself, tell me if I'm not hearing you right, is that yeah. the, if treating it like sex addiction is like doing conversion therapy around erotic and sexual uh, interests. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it opens that door, right? So now we're going to be, we're going to start to help you have uh, erotic interests in other areas. We're going to try to help you not feel urges in this particular, uh, with this particular interest. And I'm like, I, I don't see how that's not conversion therapy, right? Um, my hope is if we can decrease the shame around this particular area, if we can uh, bring acceptance around what they're going and then allow them to figure out how they want to express it. Because like, even if I've accepted that this is a part of my erotic orientation, doesn't mean then I need to develop a relationship around it or uh, start uh, a pride parade around this particular sexual interest, right? right? Uh, but they will hopefully feel as informed and comfortable. Like this is here, this is going to be persistent and insistent. And I need to know what to do about it when it shows up. So going from it feeling like it's controlling me to me being in control of it. Correct. Yeah. And I find that if we don't uh, have all these psychological defenses that are attacking it or shaming it, it also takes away some of the energy. So when it does show up, I'm like, Oh, Oh, I'm horny or, Oh, I'm aroused right now. It's like, great. What do you want to do about it? <laughs> and I could figure out, well, nothing, or maybe I'll go masturbate, or maybe I'll approach my partner. All, I think, empowering ways to address uh, this issue or this um, arousal when it shows up. What about somebody that comes in? I get this all the time, people, clients, or any other therapists ask me, who are high risk takers. And, you know, they're um, out there and they're having multiple hookups and putting themselves at risk for HIV and other STDs and STIs and now COVID or whatever it is. And the person says, and I can't stop and I'm putting my, I'm in danger. How do you treat that? Well, again, I can, I can hear your pressure around it. Like <laughs> I, I just took a breath. I was like, hmm, let's slow down. Uh, and talk to me more about what's happening, right? So much of my approach is trying to help people recognize when they're in this hyperactive state. Can we take some breaths, understand what's happening in their body, and now talk to me and walk me through these decisions. And it can this process, as you can hear, is not quick, right? Like my assessment process can take between six, eight to 10 sessions because I want to walk through these moments deliberately and intentionally so I can understand the choices that they're making. And so you kind of lump in a bunch of things together. So let me just unpack some of the things I heard. So there's potential for someone who has um, high sensation seeking, or what I would like to say, if you look at um, the dual control model and kind of explain sexual response as the balance between a gas pedal and a brake, right? They may have a very sensitive gas pedal, right? That they see sexual stimuli in the world much more readily than the average person. So they're dealing with this, this gas pedal that's very sensitive and gets tapped a lot. So how do you manage when you're being pinged by your sexual desire on a regular basis? So again, going back to identity issues, like, all right, so we've discovered in this, this work that you get aroused quickly. How do we deal with that? You have a very sensitive gas pedal. What do we want to do? How can we construct your life uh, that is going to help um, manage this and express it? Not to try to unwire the gas pedal, right? Or try to prevent that from being tapped because that can be very difficult. So we just want to acknowledge that you're a high sensation seeker or like you have a very sensitive gas pedal. How do we integrate that into how you understand yourself and then construct your life around that? And again, that is not saying you have a disorder. It's just, you know, uh, accepting the diversity of sexual expression or sexual uh, arousal compared to the average, you have a higher than average uh, sensation seeking uh, capacity or higher than average um, ability to feel sexual arousal. Great. We know that about you now. 
how can we make decisions around that? And and wouldn't you agree that people who have high sensation seeking around sex are judged more harshly than somebody who's a mountain climber, somebody that likes to jump out of planes? People pay yeah. money to watch all that, right? But yeah, when it's smoother. sex, if they're naked and masturbating, now now there's a problem. Yeah, it becomes a sexual panic or a moral panic about this particular issue. But it, yeah, I mean, people have jobs where they strap themselves to other people's bodies and jump out of a plane. I mean... <laughs> I personally think that's crazy, but I love it. And I'm like, good for you. (laughs) But they made a career around it. And that is a a wonderful way of integrating that sensation seeking or thrill seeking part of them into their daily life. They found a way to get paid for it. Fantastic. (laughs) (laughs) So then we have to talk about shame. How does, what's the role of shame in out of control sexual behavior? Oh, shame. I feel like that's primarily what I do. I'm like a shame worker. Um, so to me, shame is that um, emotion where that uh, can be result from the values conflict that they may have about the particular behavior, right? So they've been told by society that what they're, they're doing is wrong or this particular sexual interest is wrong, and they've internalized this message. That mean, must mean that I am wrong, right? They went from this behavior is wrong to I am wrong. Mm. I want to try to decouple uh, shame from whatever sexual interest or behavior that they are engaging in. I uh, try to evaluate that belief that, that they think that they are wrong. Uh, so they can just switch it to, okay, I will lo- look at these behaviors, compare that against my value system. And if that, um, if I cross it, then the behavior is wrong. Not that you are wrong, right? We don't judge ourselves by the worst things that we've ever done, right? Let's have some perspective and, um, understanding about human behavior and that we're going to make mistakes. There's times where we act outside of our value system and then we course correct because we have an ability to monitor what we're doing. Uh, so I want to shift the, um, well, when I said kind of decouple shame from their erotic interests and kind of move it out of them and into an, an evaluation about their behavior, right? So moving away from their identity as someone who's kind of shamed around this into evaluating their behavior against whatever set of values that they have. I like that a lot. And I want to go to, um, cause shame is a big, you know, it can um, turbocharge for a lot of people uh, yeah. feeling a lot out of control. And I like what you're saying, uncouple it. And I like mm-hmm. what you also said, cause I feel the same way. Like, I feel like I'm a shame healer, right? That's what most people are coming in so much shame. Yeah. I like that better than shame worker. I can start in shame. Like, no, 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 I'm trying to heal. I'm, sh- I'm, I'm, I'm going to put that better. I'm, I'm ashamed. Yeah, I'm a, I heal the people yeah. that you instill shame in. <laughs> right. Seriously, I don't want that. I don't want that. Um, oh my goodness. So the other piece around, oh, I had an idea around shame that I want to make sure that I, I can grab it. And I think I may have lost it. Um, Oh, gone forever, Joe. <laughs> no, you know what? If I talk and you want to interrupt me, then do it. Because my next, it'll come back. Yeah, it'll come back. Um, you uh, only you primarily work with men around these issues. Is that correct? Correct. And I found out what I was about shame. I wanted to say. Okay, okay. so the shame defenses <laughs> are all about not being seen, right? Uh, and that is antithetical to intimacy and vulnerability. And it speaks to why people. Uh, hold secrets. That's why they lie. That's why they engage in avoidant behaviors, right? Uh, so like, if you think about that kitschy phrase about intimacy, it's like into me, see, right? I know it's terrible, but people get it. Uh, and if I have shame around my sexual interests or my sexual behavior, I'm going to defend against being seen. And that then creates ruptures in relationships. 
Uh, it generates um, kind of uh, some of the psychological defenses that can create depression and anxiety. If I am always constantly managing and hiding this behavior, that can be difficult. And it can contribute to problems with drugs and alcohol. Because what a great way to not have to think about something I'm ashamed about is by getting drunk or getting high, kind of disconnecting myself mm. from the shame. And in particular, uh, drug use can also be used to facilitate what I consider like a liberated space from that shame or from rejection, which is something else we can talk about, but like people want to be sexual, but they don't want to feel shame with it. So if I can just extinguish that with drugs and alcohol, then I can enjoy sex in a way that is pleasurable. But then what happens is, you know, the high wears off and then the shame comes crowding in again, and then it becomes more intense. So my hope is to, again, decouple that shame so they don't need all of those defenses to hide or split uh, uh, whatever they find arousing or sexual from themselves and from other people. I love what you said that uh, drugs and alcohol can uh, find a liberated space, right? Mm-hmm. And extinguish the shame. And that's really what people are trying to do rather than manage it and understand it and uncouple it without those things. Yeah. I mean, uh, I run a group for gay and bisexual men uh, for sexual health and recovery from meth addiction. And I'm always listening for the function of the behavior. Right. So what was it about meth that was so appealing for you? I mean, granted, of course, it's um, an, a, a pleasurable experience. It amplifies the sexual arousal, amplifies the sexual excitement. But when you get down to other details, what they talk about is it becomes this liberated space for a lot of things from the shame that they have, maybe about being gay, uh, from the shame they may feel about being rejected. Right. So if we're all in this group uh, sex experience and we're all having meth. It's unlikely anyone's going to reject me. So I don't have to think about how I look naked or how I uh, will this person find me uh, attractive. You know, this becomes free from all of those negative emotional uh, consequences. And that rejection can reinforce the shame. So they're like, I can have the sexual experience free of all those concerns and enjoy myself. Right. Yeah. Then what happens over time, if I keep doing it, then the addiction settles in and it's much harder to have sex without that meth and, and uh, find that liberated, pleasurable space. Well, now that you brought up the gay and bisexual men, um, do problems differ between hetero, gay, bisexual, or any and men in general? Yeah, I, I think some of the, the mechanisms are the same, right? They're still managing uh, the sources of shame or rejection, um, but the content might be a little different, right? You know, heterosexual uh, folks don't have to contend with living within a homophobic uh, society, right? Uh, but they have issues around masculinity that may create shame for them. That's just different. So I'm still listening for how shame can impact their sexual choices, but kind of what fills the content is going to be different. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, heterosexual folks uh, haven't been living under the the shadow of the HIV epidemic, right? And all the, the grief issues and shame and fear that that has created for them, uh, for gay and bisexual folks. And there's been this huge switch that I just want to take this moment to have almost like a PSA uh, in the past five, 10 years uh, around the gay community's uh, relationship with HIV, right? With the advent of pre-exposure prophylaxis and with the acknowledgement that undetectable equals untransmittable, two very important HIV prevention strategies, uh, meaning, let me go back to one, uh, the pre-exposure prophylaxis or PrEP, you know, it's a daily medication that people can take and that if they're exposed to HIV, they won't become infected. And for people who are infected, 
uh, as long as they are on their antiviral medication and their viral load is undetectable, they're not going to transmit the disease to their sexual partners. And these are game changers in mm -hmm. the field of sexual health. Uh, so now the gay community is trying to figure out uh, how do we, how are we um, going to be sexual and the, with these new uh, sexual health technologies, right? And can we um, uh, generate or kind of have sex in a way that is aligned with our values and kind of deal with um, or having to have to not having to make decisions based on fear of HIV, mm -hmm. which is kind of uh, a new experience for a lot of uh, gay and bisexual men. Uh, and so some of them <laughs> uh, felt very liberated, right? And now they're coming back with, with uh, other STIs and syphilis. And so we have to talk about what has this meant for them. And for some, it's just been super exciting and pleasurable. And they can kind of um, have sex in a way that's pleasure focused without that fear. Uh, but now we have to kind of look at some potentially other consequences that they weren't anticipating uh, because they hadn't really had to think about it before. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you. So those are really important differences. Uh, and we have a few minutes left. What would you like yeah. to add that you think is important that we didn't touch on that you want listeners to understand? It's hmm, a great question. Uh, God, so there's so much to talk about here, Joe. I know. Um, <laughs> so maybe one thing is like, uh, so you hear Joe and I talking about the distinction between sex addiction and the sexual health approach. Uh, one of the reasons why it's so difficult for the mental health field and researchers to identify a psychosexual or sexual dysregulation disorder is because sometimes uh, sexual behavior problems are symptoms of other psychiatric conditions, right? So there's a presence of ADHD, depression, uh, anxiety, PTSD. Uh, and then when a symptom of that psychiatric disorder is sexual, you know, clinicians and um, consumers of mental health services get zeroed in and focused on that and say, this is the problem. I'm a sex addict or I'm sexually compulsive. When I like to also encourage, like, well, hold on, let's back up. There might be some other issues that are underlying it. And when we identify the sexual symptom as the disorder, uh, we are going to create an ineffective treatment plan, right? We're going to be treating the wrong thing. Uh, and that uh, my hope is that we can have a, a more detailed conversation, slow it down so we can identify, is there another psychiatric condition that's being, uh, that's being untreated or undertreated? Uh, and to me, then we can create a more effective treatment plan uh, that can address the issue and not create what we call an iotrogenic injury, not inserting a disease narrative where one doesn't exist, right? Yeah. You know, iotrogenic injury comes from the idea of, you know, um, medical providers, for instance, and during a surgical procedure, didn't wash their hands, have surgery, and they, they created the infection later, mm -hmm. right? So it's an injury created by the medical provider. I'm hoping in this conversation that we're trying to prevent some of those iotrogenic injuries coming from the mental health providers when we insert this disease narrative where one does not exist because it can obscure um, the function of the behavior and can obscure what is happening underneath, i.e. it's an untreated depressive disorder, untreated PTSD. Let's address those issues and not get distracted by the sexual symptom. Which I think is one of the most important points you've made today. All, all of them very important, but the term sex addiction is thrown around like confetti and yeah. it really needs to stop because it's so unhelpful. Yeah. Um, so, Michael, how can people get in touch with you, find you on the Internet? Where can they, what can they do? Uh, if you look at michaelvigorito.com, that is my website. Uh, you can see uh, links to uh, um, articles or books that I've contributed to or the book that I uh, co-authored, other interviews um, and other presentations that are coming forward. Uh, uh, 
unfortunately, I'm not doing many presentations right now because I'm trying to write the second book. <laughs> so oh, yeah. Really doing much uh, training. Plus, you know, in-person trainings are kind of canceled at the moment. Uh, so, but you can see other things that I'm contributing to or ways I'm keeping myself busy uh, through my website. Great. And we didn't talk about that, but you're writing the same book, Out of Control Sexual Behavior for Consumers, right? Correct. Yeah. Companion book because like treating out of control sexual behavior uh, is a consumer, is a, um, a counseling text. Uh, so we wanted to have kind of in my mind, I wanted my clients to have a book where they're walking in to see me for the consultation. They had my book in hand uh, so that they knew how I thought about this. I don't have to kind of undo some of the non-sociological information that they've read online or from some other texts that we can have to start the ground, uh, start on the ground running with good sexual health uh, information. That's the best thing I could hear today. Thank you, Michael, for being my guest today. And if you enjoyed my show, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. And also follow me on Instagram and on Twitter at Dr. Joe Court. I'll see you next time. Take care and be safe. Thanks for listening to this episode of Smart Sex, Smart Love. I'm Dr. Joe Court, and you can find me on joecourt.com. That's J-O-E-K-O-R-T.com. See you next time.